there's a lot in First and Second Corinthians. So we'll, um, these are I I feel like, and I'm even going to do it today. I'm going to kind of, you know, regret this as I'm talking about it. But this is what we do to First and Second Corinthians. I think they're long books. They're really good. They're full of so much stuff. But I think because it's like you've just done Romans, and then right after that is First and Second Corinthians, and then you get into the smaller epistles that we know and love and are easy to be familiar with. I think First and Second Corinthians get glossed over a lot, but they're rich. And and we'll do this today. We'll kind of flip through and point out some of the verses and passages that are in these books that you'd be like, oh, that's like a big, major theological thing for us. That's a major verse. That's a verse we know and love and hold to. It's in the Corinthians, but we don't spend tons of time looking at them, I think, because Romans gets more attention. The small epistles get more attention, but the Corinthians are really good. Um, so we'll do our best today to give them a fair shot because I think they're great. Um, so the author of these is who? Who do you think? Paul. And like with Romans, almost nobody um, debates that. They're, it's you know, pretty historically set that that was Paul. Um, the date for these, by the way, if you haven't found this yet in the back of your Paul book, um, he has a timeline back there. Or at least he does in my version of it, but mine's a hardback, so I don't know. I'm pretty sure you got it back there. Did you guys find that yet? What page is he? Oh, it's, there's a chronological table on 433. 433 and 434. Um, in my copy of that book, I put like a post-it note there <laughs> so I can always find it. And I, I'll use that most of the time when I'm dating stuff for Pauline stuff. Because with all these dates biblically, you got to kind of pick one place to look because everything will be off by a couple years a little bit. So I just kind of pick like, this is the place I'm going to look for New Testament timeline just so it's standard, you know. Um, this is the place I go to a lot. It's really, really, really helpful. So that's just a helpful resource I use all the time. I want to be sure you know it's there. So the um, Corinthian letters were probably written sometime around 53 and 56 A.D., respectively. Um, so 1 Corinthians probably in 53, 2 Corinthians probably in 56. Again, these dates are give or take a little bit, but I think that's a pretty accurate um, look at it, 53 and 56. So um, part of why that's significant is just because it's information and it's helpful to know. Part of why that's significant is, again, think about this is like 20 years post-Jesus, really, really close so it's not been very long. There's still lots of eyewitnesses alive. Like there's a lot in the world that's still very closely tied to the person of Jesus. Um, so the situation here, this is the broad thing, and then we'll kind of get into some details. This is fascinating, helpful um, stuff. The Corinthian thing is pretty cool. So um, for your blanks, Paul hears about issues. Paul hears about issues in a church he started and writes to address them. Pretty basic. That's going to be you know, that's a decent number of his letters. You could kind of generically use that for a lot of Paul's epistles, and um, that would fit. By the way, you know the word epistle, yes? Mm-hmm. Yes. Is that unfamiliar to anybody? I want to be sure you know that. It's one of the things that's worth knowing. Let's write it. Okay? Because I think it can be one of those, like, oh, I always heard that word, but it sounds like this word. Um, but they're different. So... Just worth clarifying. This is an epistle, which is the fancy word for a letter, basically. This is an apostle, which is the fancy word for somebody sent out to help begin Christianity and start churches and stuff. Um, so this is one of Paul's epistles. Most of Paul's epistles can fit into this. Paul hears about issues in a church he started, and he writes to address them. That's certainly true here. Um, so let's open up to Acts chapter 18. I just want to actually look through this section of Scripture, Acts 18. And then we'll draw out a few things from it that I think are key to understanding First Corinthians. So this is when Paul visits Corinth. Um, so while you're turning there, kind of the brief 
background for this situation is in chapter 17, Paul goes, Paul goes to Thessalonica, which in Greek and Greece, even today, is actually Thessaloniki. If you ever hear that, it's the same place. I remember the first times I heard that, and I was like, what are you talking about? So it's the same. In Greek, it's Thessaloniki. That's what they call it. Um, Thessalonica is what your Bible probably says. So he goes to Thessalonica, chapter 17, which is kind of the northeastern-ish um, part of Greece. Not far east, but kind of northeastern. I mean, he goes there, people get mad fast, and he kind of has to leave town. So he goes down the coast um, to Berea, and then he ends up going to Athens, where he kind of hides out. And then we talked about Athens when I talked through Acts. He goes up on Mars Hill and argues with people and points to the Parthenon, and that's not as good as what God did in here, which is so cool. Um, so he, if, well, it doesn't matter. Thessalonica is kind of north um, eastern Greece. Athens is kind of the southern central tip of Greece. And then from there, he goes to Corinth which is just a little bit west, basically, of Athens. If you can imagine how Greece looks from your perspective. He's like up here, and then he comes down here, and then he kind of goes over here to Corinth. Okay. Um, so, Acts chapter 18, he's in Corinth. Um, and let's just read this um, stretch together. We'll read probably all of chapter 18. Um, so, chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens, so after he does the Athens speech, the Areopagus, and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Remember that? We talked about that in Romans. So there's that edict. They have to leave. They're part of this. Um, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, because they stayed up north, to kind of finish the ministry, but Paul had to leave because it was dangerous. They rejoined him down south. When they uh, came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door. I love that. To the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them from the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, which is another word for kind of the southern half of Greece, and Macedonia is kind of the northern half of Greece. So when you see those words in Scripture, that's what they're referring to. So Achaia is that southern part. Um, while Gallio was proconsul there, um, so kind of the Roman head guy there, kind of the pilot of uh, Achaia, more or less, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it'd be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So this Roman guy is like, You're arguing about your religion. I don't really care what your religion does as long as it doesn't cause me problems, which it's doing right now, so leave me alone quickly. It's kind of the, what he's saying. Um, keep the peace. Uh, verse 16, so he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatever. Uh, verse 18, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. 
He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch, which is kind of a, a home base for him. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, where is Achaia again? Yeah, like the southern half of Greece. So they're in Ephesus now, which is actually over in Turkey, so kind of a, around the Mediterranean. But he wants to go to Achaia, um, to Greece. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Um, okay. Let's fill in your blanks, and I want to talk around them a little bit. So Paul met, in Acts 18, Paul met Priscilla and Aquila. Um, those become, uh, this is like the longest passage about them, but they're partners in ministry for Paul. They show up other places. So Paul met Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. Um, the next one, Sosthenes, who is in the text there. So verse, uh, what is it, 17. Sosthenes might have been a convert. So here's why I say that. Keep your finger there in Acts 18 and flip over to 1 Corinthians 1. And in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul's beginning this letter and he says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth. So a couple things are possible. That's not like an uncommon name. It wouldn't be crazy if two people, two very different people have the same name. So it may just be another guy. It's also possible that this Sosthenes, a couple of things. We don't know exactly who he is. It's possible that in verse 17, when they all turn on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him, it's because he was a prominent Jewish leader who had already become a Christian, and all the people in the court are mad about it. And they're like, we're going to take out our anger on somebody, but Galileo told us we can't be mad at Paul, so they're mad at this guy. So it's possible he was a convert then. It's also possible he was the Jewish guy then, and the court is saying, these Jews are causing trouble. Let's beat one of the Jews so they leave us alone. And then later on, he converts. Does that make sense? So we don't know the situation. It could be any of those scenarios. But it's just so interesting to see the role this guy plays in Acts 18, the role he's playing in First Corinthians 1, that he's with Paul, whoever this guy is. It's just interesting to imagine who that might be. I think it's pretty cool. Um, so Sosthenes, Sosthenes might have been a convert, either early on or after persecution, or at least... He's somebody who converted and is helping Paul in ministry. Um, third, Apollos is sent back to Corinth. Apollos is sent back to Corinth. Um, so that's kind of what happens in Acts 18 that forms some of the backgrounds of what we're going to read in 1 Corinthians. Let's talk about Apollos just for a minute. Um, do you know which book of the Bible Apollos might have written? Hebrews. Hebrews. Uh, maybe. There's lots of theories about who wrote Hebrews. I think, I think the Apollos theory makes probably the most sense. Um, but it doesn't. we don't know. We don't really know. But the reason I want to point that out here is because the descriptions it gave of Apollos in Acts 18 are kind of the biggest reasons that make sense to me. Um, that he's somebody who, um, in 18 verse 24, 
Um, it says he was a Jew. He was really learned, had a thorough knowledge of Scripture. Um, he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, spoke with great fervor, taught about Jesus accurately. Um, when he goes back to Achaia, this is in verse 28, he vigorously refuted the Jews, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. If you read through Hebrews with that kind of bullet list next to you, you'd be like, oh, that sounds a lot like this. Like tons of scripture references, tons of scripture references that point to Jesus fulfilling them, tons of scripture references that try to prove from a Jewish lens that Jesus is Messiah. Um, from a Greek perspective, Hebrews is really like technical and eloquent kind of writing. Um, it's not just like easy to understand Greek. It's pretty difficult. Some of the most difficult Greek in the New Testament. So I think the Apollos suggestion makes a lot of sense as somebody who's like super smart, pulling on scripture, really cares about arguing with Jews about the Jewish Messiah being Jesus makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know for sure. It makes a lot of sense. But I just want you to be aware of that conversation and who Apollos is. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. Do you have a, like, who you do think wrote Hebrews? You're just kind of like, I don't know, it could be whatever. I think if I had to guess, I would probably say Apollos. Okay. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot. Well, when we get to Hebrews, we'll talk yeah. about a lot of other options. But I think that's the one that probably... There's more. I, I don't. I don't even know if it's the one that makes most sense. It's the one where there's most evidence and bullet point that you could point to. Mm -hmm. I think, but it could go lots of ways. Yeah. yeah. Um, anything else on all that? The ICT stuff. Yeah. Um, why do you think that like we don't know who some of the like acts of like maybe Luke, but it's not like this is murdered by Luke. Like, why do you think they either like left out the names or like I don't know? Because I feel like if you're just, like addressing a murder to someone, you write I don't know for sure. I think in some cases it may be that like everybody would have known so they don't worry about it, you know. It's like um when Kyle preaches, that's that's what some of them too. Some of these like when Paul's writing a letter, he's like, I'm writing to teach you something, this is my name. But some of them, like some people say Hebrews is like a sermon that got written down. Mm -hmm. So like if we were doing that with Kyle's sermons and you just had the words, you wouldn't know who it was. Mm -hmm. But if you were there you would know. You know, or if you knew his voice, you would know. Um, so some of it is, I think they weren't worried about preserving it because everybody that it was for knew who it was. Mm -hmm. And then it ended up becoming this thing. Um, so I think that's some of it. Yeah. It's a good question. It's a good question. What else? Do you think going off of that could yeah. also be to protect people from persecution? Maybe. That if you're writing some of that stuff at a time when persecution is becoming more prevalent, that, yeah. It's like, let this be helpful for the church, but don't trace it back to me. It's kind of like when I was telling you about that couple in Turkey or that family in Turkey, that they knew the lady in Iran knew the person who was telling her what to do with the Bibles. And she knew he was talking to other people, but she didn't know who they were or where they were. She didn't know who was picking them. I, I think there probably is some, like, Let's not leave too many web traces of how we're all together, especially as things got a little later and persecution became more prominent. I think that's probably a piece of it. Could be. Yeah, it's good. It's good. What else on any of that stuff? Okay. I love, yeah, Jackson. Why do you think they listed Priscilla's name before Aquila? Or do you think there's any I don't know. to that? I don't know. Um, it's possible, and some people will say this, that when, because we'll do this with the names of the 12 disciples when they list them, 
that you'll make the point of like, well, Peter's name was always mentioned first, so clearly he was a leader of them, or you know. So I think there is probably some like how you list them is determining some sort of per- Judas's last, you know. Um, so there probably is some. What's that? Um, so yeah, I think there may be some some purpose to it. Um, at that by listing Priscilla first, maybe it's like a. Um, this is a couple, and they were doing things together, but like she was the teacher, or she was the one who was more prominent, or she was the one that Paul got along with best, or I, you know, I don't know. So I think it's possible that's a purpose. It's also possible that like I always say, my grandma, and my grandpa, but I'm not thinking I'm going to say grandma first because I just say it, you know. So I think it's possible they're just saying stuff, um, but it's also possible it was on purpose. I don't know. Yeah. Good question. Okay. All right. Um, here's the next thing. Let's talk about Corinth a little bit, the city of Corinth. It's a really interesting place. Um, so here's a few things about it. It's geographically really strategic. Geographically strategic. Um, you guys, I was, I was just thinking right now for a second, I'm going to try to draw this map. And then I was like, wait, we all have Bibles. I'm not going to draw a map <laughs> because this exists, right? So try to find a map in your Bible or something. Or yeah, in the Paul book, there's maps everywhere. Um, so if you can find, like in my Bible, I've got a map of Paul's missionary journeys. You can kind of trace a lot of this stuff. If you can't follow along, it's okay. I'll describe it. But it's helpful if you can see it instead of me. I keep pointing like where north is and stuff. Page Look at a map. You'll be better. There you go. 192 in your Paul book if you feel like it. Okay. So can you see, can you see Corinth on a map? Are you seeing it? Find where it is. Did I describe it decent by pointing? You know, kind of like. A little, uh, what is it, map. west of Athens? Well, mine's but mine's actually kind of split. It's not that helpful. Not me, that does. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, maybe someday. When we talk about Israel, I'll draw Israel. It's easier. Greece is a little tough. It's, <laughs> it's so wet. Really? Also, look at mine. <laughs> That's tough. That is tough. Uh, maybe the Paul book would be better. Okay, so do you see where Corinth is? A little bit west of Athens. You see how that works? So that whole kind of area there is Greece. You see it's surrounded by water. Mm-hmm. Connects to the Aegean Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, the Ionian Sea. Are you seeing those things? Yes. So this is a major, like coming from Asia all the way over as far as like where Israel is in Judea. And then kind of up into Syria and all that whole region up north where modern day Turkey is. Are you following me mm-hmm. a little bit? And then kind of around into like Galatia, Asia, and then the Aegean Sea. And there's Greece right in the middle of it. You following me? A little bit? Is anybody confused? I think I have a weird map. Okay. Um, so basically, let me, let me just describe. So it's, it's not the end of the world. I think maps are helpful. If it's not helping you, it's okay. But um, where Corinth is, is on a, like a really narrow strip of land. It's like a few miles across. Um, but, if, but it's land. So usually what you have to do if you're like kind of a ship following this trade route is you have to sail all the way around... Greece to get over to Italy or to get to the other side um, of Greece to like the western side and that would be a couple hundred miles 250 miles something like that to sail around and because it's kind of the mixture of those different seas it was really really dangerous it was like like in the Odyssey even it talks about he has a shipwreck in that spot like it's a known dangerous spot so if you could just get across like you could almost see across the problem if you could just get across Corinth it would be super helpful to you so what they did is actually they built 
some archaeologists call it like one of the first railroads. They built this system where there was like a ramp down into the sea where big boats could kind of pull up to it and then they would pull them up and get them on wheels and like run them across land and back Mm -hmm. into the water. Isn't that wild? So they didn't do that all the time, but you could, I would imagine there was a cost to it. You know, I would imagine it's a pain, um, but they would do that some. Sometimes in wars they would do that, like huge fleets across there because it is way safer. It could save you a lot of time if you could get pretty efficient with it. Um, so Corinth becomes a pretty strategic spot. Also just becomes a great trade spot because it's easy to get there, much harder to get around. So you might trade there. Stuff comes from the other side and trades there if you don't want to try to go around the south of Greece. Does that make sense? So geographically, Corinth is a pretty interesting and strategic spot. Lots of different people tried to build or at least dreamed of building a canal through there. Nero tried and it didn't work very well. Um, now they actually have a canal. You can look at pictures of it. It's pretty sweet. They've like carved into the rock and it's really, really narrow, but you can, it's cool. Yeah, I think it'd be neat. Um, you can see it from space, which is wild too. I was doing all kinds of fun research this week. Um, so there's a canal there now. There wasn't before, but they had kind of a system. It's a really strategic port city. Um, there in Greece. So really, really geographically strategic. Um, here's the other thing. You guys are going to go, whoa, when I say this, but don't do it. Just think about it. You can figure it out. They hosted the Ist- Isthmian Games. That's I-S-T-H. Isthmian Games. You know the word isthmus? Remember from geography when you were in school? It's like Christmas, but it's different. <laughs> So the Isthmian Games and Isthmus is like that little narrow stretch of land like that. So they hosted what are called the Isthmian Games. Um, There were a few different games like the Olympics. The Olympics were the big ones. Um, But there were a few different athletic events that would go on in Greece at different, like kind of alternating years. So the Olympics were every four. On the off years, different sets of games would be played. Corinth hosted these that happened um, every other year. So like twice in that twice as often as the Olympics happened. They would happen here. And it was a really, really, really big deal. Um, and they would host them there. Lots of like running, lots of athletic stuff. They would have other like arts um, stuff. So it was kind of like an arts festival meets the Olympics there in Corinth. Um, and so it was huge. But where they were, where they were hosted, there wasn't places for people to live, certainly not the amount of people who would descend on the city. So where do you think they stayed when they would come for the whole festival for a long time? In tents. Crazy. So when Paul goes there, um, it's, you know, again, depending on the exact year, he goes there at a time probably right before, during, and immediately after when one of the rounds of the Isthmian Games is going to happen. Priscilla and Quilla have settled there, maybe because they knew they had to leave Rome. It's like, well, we build tents. We could go there and probably make a living. And Paul's meeting up with them because they're doing the same thing and they're believers. And so they work together. Paul stays in Corinth about 18 months, which is. The second longest, I think, he stayed anywhere. Ephesus was the longest. Um, but he stayed there about 18 months, which leading up to the games, lasting through the games, staying a little bit after. So he's probably making a pretty significant amount of money um, to help fund his ministry in life. Isn't that interesting? I think it's so cool to think about. Also, um, a couple of the passages we really know um, with like athletic metaphors are in 1 Corinthians. Um, let me see if I can find it for you. Um, okay, so this is First Corinthians 9, 24. We'll kind of go through this and where it fits in the whole flow of the, the letter later. 
but it's so cool to think of when we're thinking about these games. So first screen is 9.24. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners won, run, but only one gets the prize? By the way, back then they didn't have gold, silver, bronze. It was just a winner. That was it. Um, so only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games, so when he's saying the games, it's like, you know, what's going on? Like right now. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. The crown they gave was probably pine, like formed into a wreath. It used to be celery. Celery. But they changed it to pine later on. Um, so we do it to get a crown of the lesser. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. There was also a lot of boxing in the Isthmian games. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So I think we can understand that metaphor regardless. But it's so cool to think of like this was a major part of their culture, their economy, their entertainment, their livelihood, their recreation. That's what they were thinking about and doing and making their living on. And Paul knows that. He lived it. Um, so I think it's so cool to think of that reality um, when he's there. Uh, here's the, your next blanks there. Corinth was a, we've kind of hinted at this, but let me just put it in concise terms. Corinth was a wealthy, influential, and worldly city. Wealthy, influential, worldly city. I'm thinking of, I've heard people say it was like Las Vegas of the ancient world, and I think there's probably some elements of that in the worldliness, but Miami maybe a, I don't know, a closer comparison, because it's like on a port, and there's like coming in and going out, and lots of different cultural influences kind of fusing in there um, with this element of worldliness and wealth and desirability, because it would be a beautiful place to be. It's just this like mixing spot of a lot of awesome things, which can be a breeding ground for a lot of really difficult things if you're trying to be a holy Christian person. Um, so Corinth was a wealthy, influential, and worldly city. There was a term that uh, came about, was coined at this time, basically a verb form of the, of the word Corinthian. They would turn the, uh, to be a Corinthian into a verb in Greek, which is hard to say. But it was basically to say, like, your being a Corinthian became kind of an expression for, like, you are living it up and being worldly and getting the most out of life, and it's kind of bad. You know, is it that kind of um, term. So that's what Corinth was like. Make it sense? Reminds me of the saying, man, you're living like the Kennedys. It's a little bit like that. Yeah. Like John F. Kennedy. Yeah, it's like you you have the most of everything. Yeah, it's a little different, you know, meaning to it. Yeah, it's the same where you would take, like, a thing everybody knew and just turn it into an expression that you understand. Yeah. It's good. It's good. Um, Okay, a few more things um, to kind of keep boiling down into what's happening in Corinth. Uh, First, Corinth was a major Roman city. So we talked about what Corinth was, where it was, the things about its characteristics. But even in the empire, the Roman Empire um, used it as a major city because it controls trade. It's right in between um, Rome and a lot of the rest of the empire in the east. And so if you could cross over Corinth, if you could control Corinth, if you could economically take advantage of Corinth, really significant. So the Romans, again, if you're looking at your map, the Romans leveraged that city a lot. It's a major Roman city. Um, Next, social classes produced major divisions. Social classes produced major divisions. So a lot of wealth. um, Think of, you know, I'd imagine 
um, athletics probably do a lot of the same kinds of things back then as they do now, where you kind of have this like elite, wealthy, everybody knows them, and there's fame level to it. And then there's a whole lot of people who make that happen who aren't as famous or wealthy. You know, there's a lot of that class division. Um, there's a lot of workers like tent makers who live there who are not wealthy social elites, but probably make up a decent number of the population. Then there's a lot of people who control the trade. But then there's a lot of people who are manning the ships. And they're not the wealthy social elites, but they're part of the whole system. So there's kind of clear divisions of wealth and not, but we all work together to make this economy happen. There's probably a lot of like, when you're wealthy, you act this way. And when you're not, you don't get to. The kinds of things we know about social divisions were happening there also. Um, so think about that in a church. Like we talked about with Roman and, uh, or with Greek and, sorry, Gentile and Jewish divisions in the church at Rome. There's going to be like rich and poor people coming together and believing that we should be able to come together on the basis of the gospel. But practically, it's going to be really hard to work out, right? So they're going to have to figure out what's, what that's like. Um, next uh, major um, question that Paul's going to answer is, how should Christians engage everyday moral issues? How should Christians engage everyday moral issues? So this is hard regardless of where you are, but particularly in a city like this, that, was, that would have been very hedonistic. You know, like um, our physical pleasures drive us and our physical pleasures are the most important things to us and we're wealthy enough to afford that. Mm-hmm. In a world like that, coming to Christ and the harsh you know, whiplash that would have been for you morally, um, there's going to be a lot of questions like that. So 1 Corinthians answers those things. Like you're sleeping with who? That's not okay. I don't care what you think is okay. You're drinking what just because you have freedom? Yeah, you have freedom, but goodness, you know, there's a lot of like, this is how as Christians we're going to navigate how to be moral people, not just because we need to get our rules in order, but because holiness matters and because the resurrection's a reality and because you're bridging two social classes and, and different religious sectors. So how are we going to figure this out together? That's what Corinthians deals with, some of what Corinthians deals with. Um, next and last on this is Paul's philosophy of ministry. Paul's philosophy of ministry. There are major, major sections of both the Corinthian letters that deal with Paul talking about how and why he does ministry and basically why that's okay. He spends a lot of time defending himself in these letters. Um, And we'll look at some of those passages, but a lot of that comes from he was, again, think about this, these economic clashes, think about these religious classes. He's a, a like traveling tent maker who sets up a living just like lots of other random people who set up a living and kind of do the work that the rich people pay for, trying to then tell them, I have the key to the universe that you can have access to. You know, like, I know the king of the world. You should know him too. So they love him. They're moved by him. The gospel has its power. But then they're also looking at him like, wait, why did you come down to Southern Greece anyway? Wait, because you were run out of town in Thessalonica and they didn't like you and they beat you? And you're more or less okay with that? And people in Athens were stirred up about it. And some people here in Corinth are really mad at you and tried to arrest you. And that's okay with you. Shouldn't you be, like, important and powerful and influential? Like, if you're right, then shouldn't things be going well for you? There's, there's some of those questions. And so they don't understand. Some of them don't understand how somebody being persecuted, being mocked, not super wealthy kind of on the fringes of being out of town and hang out with poor people and hang out with rich people doesn't make sense to them. And so after Paul leaves, some of the issues that crop up emphasize that divide or emphasize those questions. Um, They'll even, we'll read about in 1 Corinthians 1, Apollos comes to town who was very learned and well-spoken and a wonderful debater. And Paul had some of that stuff, but Paul's also kind of rough around the edges and not afraid to just round people up. Apollos seems a lot more 
like he would have functioned very stately, you know, and they, some of them love it. Like, that's what it should look like, you know. And Paul's like, hey, me, Paulus, whoever, is not the most important thing. Jesus is the most important thing. doesn't matter how I say it. Are you going to believe him or not? Are you going to believe what I look like? Or are you just going to believe what the gospel truth is? So Paul kind of has to solve that issue in Corinthians. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, all right, so get to 1 Corinthians 1, if you're not there yet. And let's just kind of walk through um, an outline of the book. And as we do, we'll kind of look at sections and pull out some verses that are significant. You know, kind of how we do it. Um, but 1 Corinthians, there's no honestly great way to outline these books. There's not, you know, some of them have like a pretty cool and thought out thing. I'm, I'm sure Paul was thoughtful in his thing, but it doesn't work in like a really tight outline. So these are just sections that I think are helpful for us to be able to think through these books. And you can find tons of different options like any of these outlines, but there's nothing, you know, super great about this. Hopefully it's just helpful um, as we go through. So your first outline point is divisions. Divisions. First Corinthians 1 through 4 talks about lots of things, but I think that's a good way to sum it up. The people are divided on lots of different types of issues, lots of different questions, and Paul writes to get in the thick of addressing those. Uh, by the way, I mentioned earlier that there's a lot of stuff in Corinthians that you know or you might be familiar with, or at least is really important, but we don't often think about the Corinthians being significant. I looked just to be sure I had the number before, before doing this. On your Bible Knowledge Survey, 14 of the in which Bible book questions are from First and Second Corinthians, which is a lot. Like I, I don't know, there may not be more from somewhere else. Like it's there's a lot from First and Second Corinthians that are really important or verses you might know. And sixteen, if you count being able to use First Corinthians to answer the how would you address this topic question. Do you remember that? It's been a while since you took it, probably. Um, but there's a lot of stuff in First and Second Corinthians that's significant and worth knowing. Um, okay, so divisions, chapters one through four. Uh, let's see where we want to start. Um, let's just read the first nine verses and then go from there and see what happens. Um, so Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's interesting that Paul leads this with, to all the Christians there who are called to be holy, like that's, he doesn't always start with that. But with them, he's like, remember, this is a key part of this thing. Uh, verse four, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him, you've been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Do you remember one of the most significant spiritual gifts chapters in the Bible where it's found? First Corinthians 12 is a big one. So I wonder if Paul even here early on is trying to say, I know you got questions about how the gifts work. I know some people speak in tongues, some people don't. You're riled up about it. I want you to know you've got everything you need. The Spirit has come. I know He's there. We'll get to the details. The Spirit's with you. You've got what you need. Don't worry about it. I think he's trying to alleviate some of that pressure. Uh, verse 8, he'll keep you strong to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Uh, I appeal to you, brothers, verse 10, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. And then he goes on to, to talk about what I was saying earlier, 
um, they're kind of following different preachers and have their favorite one who teaches differently or who looks like they want him to look or who feels like they want it to feel. And Paul's like, you weren't baptized into my name or Peter's name or Paul's name or anybody else's name. You're baptized in the name of Jesus. Listen to who you want to listen to. We're all preaching the same gospel. Um, so he's trying to get to the heart of some of those divisions. Um, now let's read in um, chapter 1, verse 18, because this is going to be big um, for overall what he's trying to talk about, about his credibility. It's also just one of my favorite passages, and I'm teaching, so I'm going to read a long passage. Um, love it, love it. So we'll read through chapter 2, uh, verse 5 at least. And he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. In other words, I think he's kind of trying to tell them, you want me to be eloquent, you want everything to be fancy, I don't really care about that. People who don't understand this think it's all foolishness anyway. We're just going to tell the truth. God doesn't care what you think is wise. God has his own standard of wisdom. So I'm going to preach the gospel. Um, Verse 20, where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. I would, let me just say to our room here for a second. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Did God call you because you were wise and fancy and capable and had all the answers and had all the intelligence and had every gift and were the perfect leader to lead the next generation of the gospel? Think about what you were like when you were called. Was that it? Or did God make wise his own wisdom and make foolish the wisdom of the world? Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So I think if, if we could just summarize even that last couple of verses, I think what Paul is trying to say is... If you don't believe in me because of what I preached, then I did it right. Because I was just trying to preach Jesus. So I don't care if you're impressed with me or not. Did you hear what I said? Did you hear what I had to say? That's what I want. I would love, I, I think I've said things like this before. One of the, my favorite things that happens sometimes is people will say like, uh, I don't know, they'll say things like, I'll get this compliment from other people. It happened the other day. Somebody's like, they heard... Um, Somebody was telling me about a sermon you preached. 
but they didn't know it was you. They just remember you said this thing and it impacted them. But they're like, I don't remember who was speaking. But this other person's like, I, I was there. I know it was you. I just want to pass that on. I'm like, that's the best. If they don't, they're not walking out going, Ben was so great. Mm-hmm. But they're walking out going, Scripture came alive to me mm-hmm. and I can go home and understand it. Like, mm-hmm. that's the, I think that's some of what Paul's getting at. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Paul's mad that they know the name Paul. You know, sometimes you, that's how it works. Like, I know your names. That's how it works. But man, what a gift to be able to say, I don't care if you know me. I don't care if you like me or impressed with me. There's truth here that I want you to have, and I want you to understand it. And if the Holy Spirit's power overshadows anything I have to say, that's the goal, you know? Mm-hmm. I would want that to happen. So, um, so much good here. And I would just, like I said, remind you, find yourselves in this a little bit. Um, Paul just reminding them, like, you want to get after me for not being impressive enough, for not being wealthy enough, for not being eloquent enough. You think Apollos is more eloquent or, or whoever. Or you think Peter is less eloquent. They're all, Peter's also another one they're talking about. Peter's probably... I would guess not as good of a rhetorical communicator as Paul because he wasn't trained in that like Paul Mm -hmm. probably was. Um, So like you can pick, you know, your strain of how good somebody is at something. But he's just trying to remind them, were you brought into this family because you were really wise and a good philosopher? Mm -hmm. Were you brought into this family because of your money? Because I'm sure Paul told them because the early church in Acts was big on this. You're not going to buy your way into this. You're not going to lie your way into what you can give to support our community so that we respect you. That's not how this works. What you bring to the table does not matter. What were you like when you were called? Mm-hmm. Were you wise or wealthy or whatever? Did it matter? Zero. Right? Zero. Um, and I, I want to remind us of that in our salvation. What you bring to the table mm-hmm. does not accomplish any of that for you. It's just being willing to take what he has to offer. It doesn't accomplish any of that for you. I want to remind you that for why you're in this room. You're not in this room because, and now I think you guys will hear me and you know me well enough. You're not in this room because you're the most talented people we could find. Mm-hmm. You're not in this room because you're the most eloquent people we could find or the most prepared people we could find or the most academic people we could find or the most, you fill in your blank with whatever you feel inadequate about or impressed with yourself about. That's not why you're here. You're here because we prayed about it and came to unity. You're here because we think you're humble enough to learn. We're, you're here because we see God's calling on you for some reasons that I could like articulate and agree with. You know, you have gifts and you have ability and you have capability, but you're here because God set you apart and gave you things mm-hmm. that are not just on paper check boxes. You know, I, that's just not what you bring to the table. Leverage all of yourself for his kingdom. And you have a lot of good things to offer. Leverage those for the kingdom. You don't earn your way into this by being impressive. Um, you don't earn your way into the kingdom by being impressive. And if you're hanging your hat on your impressiveness and your ability and your skill or the way you project yourself, you're going to crumble at some point. And probably some people are going to crum- crumble because of that. Hang your hat on the fact that he called you and then just bring everything you have. Like if he called me, he can have all of me. And I hope he redeems it. He can have the good and the mess and he's going to bring good out of it. Um, but don't bring yourself and hope he'll call you or validate you. That's not going to work. It's certainly not for very long. Um, come because he called you. And remember what you were like when you were called. And sometimes read this passage and be like, yeah, was I wise or was I foolish? Was I weak or was I strong? Was I lowly and despised? Things that are not. I like that phrase. He chose the things that are not. Like, yeah, I, there was so much that I'm not. Man, I'm grateful that he said yes to me. You know. So sometimes I think we just need to camp out in this passage. Okay. Um, you can see in um, the rest of chapter 2, he kind of continues that line of thought. Like God has, has more to say and more wisdom to offer than whatever you could cultivate. 
um, it ends in verse 16. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? It's like you don't know what God's going to do or, you know, he's going to make his own decisions and, and kind of carve out his own plans. We just say yes to him and are so glad we're part of Christ. Um, chapters three, uh, chapter 3, he's going to keep going. My, my heading is on divisions in the church, so he just continues on this division. Um, talking about Apollos, talking about who's following him. Um, but then he says, look at um, chapter 3, verse 11. I think this is a kind of a key verse in this passage. He says, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So it's like, listen, I gave you Christ. That's the gospel. So if somebody's trying to build on that with things that are different than Christ, don't listen. If someone's trying to build on that in line and in keeping with Christ, great. Like whoever that is, great. (laughs) But if it's not on Christ, then reject it. If it is on Christ, then I don't care who it is, I think Paul would say. Listen to Apollos. Great. He has good things to say. Listen to Peter. Listen to me. As long as you're building on Christ, um, then you're going to be okay. Um, Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Um, Paul says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Um, Paul's going to use this same kind of metaphor and imagery later in chapter 6 when he's more specifically talking about holiness, sexual purity, that kind of stuff. Um, but Corinthians is where a lot of that imagery comes from. You are the temple. It's important to note, and I think healthy and helpful for us all to note, that he's speaking in the plural here, right? He, I don't think he's trying to say, you yourself, this person, I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. I think by extension that's true, but what Paul is saying is you guys are where God's Spirit dwells. All of the, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So let's all be people who, let's be a community who, can welcome the Holy Spirit in, you know, be a place that's worthy of Him dwelling. So does that mean that individually that's true? Yeah, um, because I need to play my part and I need to be part of the community. And as you know, we learned at SFR, sin is very communal and has effects on all that stuff. So I want to do my part to make this a community that's pure and ready to receive Him. But Paul's actual words are, the church, you all, plural, is where God's Spirit is. So let's all do that together. And we help each other do that, you know, and we encourage each other to do that. And we all know we're not perfect at it. Um, but then we can pursue holiness together and encourage together and hold accountable together and all those things. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, chapter 4. Uh, let me see what verses I want to pull out from here. Um, this is Paul talking about um, kind of how he goes about being an apostle. Here we go. Um, oh, man. Okay. Um, let's start. Where do I want to start? Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, he's talking about... Uh, let's just start in verse 1. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to find this is a long train of thought he's got so we're not we'll see we're, we're not going to make it very far uh, chapter 4 verse 1 so then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the secret things of God so this kind of he's culminating all right. so then because of all that this is the end of this section you guys are divided on who's teaching you what and how important they are and how important they look I just want to tell you we're servants of God that's all I'm trying to do so we should be regarded as servants of God now it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. 
My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. This is good stuff for us, by the way, remember. I don't care what you think of me. I don't care what I think of me. I care what God thinks of me, so I'm just going to do my best to do what I think he wants me to do. Um, Verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time, wait till the Lord comes. He'll bring to light what's hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Okay, so that is a pretty haunting verse, right? Heavy, haunting kind of verse. I love, though, how Paul ends that thought. And I think he would mean both sides of it. I think he, would, he wouldn't be afraid for us to take that kind of haunting, convicting element. Of like, God's going to expose everything. So take it seriously. But he ends with, so each will receive his praise from God. So I think in context, Paul isn't saying, you're sinful and you feel ashamed all the time and God's going to expose that and mock you. Although he might, if that's what needs to happen. In context, what Paul is saying is, you don't think I'm good enough because I don't outwardly look like it. I'm doing my best to guard my motives and do a good job. Someday God's going to reward me for that. That's what Paul's saying. So take the conviction, but also hold on to what Paul's saying here. God's going to know your motives, the best parts of it. He knows your sin better than you do. He knows your motives really well. He knows your heart. He knows your desire. He knows that you're broken over your sin. He knows how you want to serve him. And someday, you're going to receive your praise from God. He doesn't say so that everybody's going to be, receive their condemnation from God. He says you'll receive your praise from him. I think God will have praise to give you too. And it's not just the hidden dark things that are bad. It's the hidden things that people can't fully see, but you're doing your best to be faithful. God sees that stuff. And that's good. Like So be convicted by this first, but also be encouraged. God sees you in the deepest places. I mean, he knows the goodness of your heart that he put there too. Verse 6, Now, brother, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've become kings. And that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. So I think he's trying to tell them, like, literally, you guys are in pretty good social status. You don't need me to get you that to that place. So why are you worried if I look like you or not? Live your life. Enjoy it. I wish I could live like you do, but I don't. So just be grateful that I gave you the gospel. You know, like we have different roles to play here. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you're so wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we've become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I'm sending to you, Timothy, my son, whom I love, who's faithful in the Lord, who reminds you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I'll find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. Isn't that like, ooh, he's coming to get you. And I, this, verse, this verse is so good. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love with a gentle spirit? So basically saying like, 
you guys are doing a lot of things that are out of line. Get your hearts in order. I'm going to come visit you and check and see. you got to get your hearts in line. Kill your arrogance. Be humble. Um, but, man, I love that verse 20. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power. I burned that one on your heart somewhere, too. I think it's, you know, we talk about the, like, because Paul's specifically talking about it, the eloquence and the fancy stuff and the external stuff. It's like, it, especially in this world today, I anybody can decide they want to be famous and you could get there to some degree you may not ever be as much as you want because that's kind of how that works Mm -hmm. you can build yourself a following you can make yourself a podcast you can make yourself a channel you can prop that stuff up and and if that's what God wants you to do do it and if the gospel's preached great you know I think Paul would say in Philippians there's some people who preach the gospel with bad motives as long as they're preaching the gospel I'm going to get out of the way and do my thing with my integrity, you know. So if God's calling you to do that, do it. And if God's winning through that, beautiful. Praise God he wins through that. Just remember, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. It's not a matter of how impressive you can look. It's not a matter of how much you can say in the right kind of ways. It's not a matter of what influence you can gain in what kind of hearing. It's a matter of, is the power of God filling the message? Is the power of God saving souls? Because my eloquence cannot save a soul. The power of God can save. Uh, my eloquence can't actually really build a church. Mm-hmm. You could gather people together for a while. The power of God builds his church and advances it in the kingdom. So this is, a, I think, convicting verse in some ways. Like remember, the kingdom of God is going to work through its power. So what I need to do is yield to it, do what he wants to do. Let him bring the fruit he wants to bring. It's also an encouragement. I can do everything I can to try to do good work and build good things and do a good job, but it's not a matter of what I create mm-hmm. anyway. I want to be faithful. I want to work hard. It's a matter of the power of God. So mm-hmm. at the end of the day, pray. You know, God, show up. God, do your thing. God, be powerful. Preach the message you want preached. You know, draw people to yourself. You say when Jesus is lifted up, you'll draw people to yourself. So I'm going to lift him up. You do the drawing. <laughs> like That's all I can do is just like lift up Jesus. Um, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's not a matter of you saying the right things, doing the right things in the right order, being impressive. It's the power of God. And it's a good verse. It's a good verse. We're less than a quarter of the way through. Okay. <laughs> the next section um, I would just call worldliness. Um, and again, this is not a like super precise, world-changing outline. I think it's just helpful segments. So chapters 5 through 7 I would call worldliness. Um, he talks a lot about sexual immorality. He talks about them having lawsuits with one another, which is like, hey, don't do that. You're going into these secular courts with secular Roman judges to try to decide disputes you're having a, as a family. Solve it as a family. Don't pay all your money to the court to fix it. Figure it out. Reconcile with each other, and which is good. That's why if you hear our elders talk or when you guys have been around our shepherding elders, these chapters say a lot about what they spend their time doing, our shepherding elders. They deal with marriages that are breaking apart and divorcing each other for unbiblical reasons or just because there's still reconciliation possible and they're trying to advocate for it, which is beautiful. And they're trying to say, you're suing each other, you're fighting with one another, you're going to court with one another. Stop that. We can solve it. Let's help each other. Let's do this well. That's a lot of what our shepherding elders spend their time doing, which is a beautiful and difficult, not glamorous ministry. I'm grateful that they care about it. Um, So these chapters talk a lot about that stuff. Chapter 7 is a really important marriage chapter. This is the, um, my heading in chapter 7 is marriage. Paul talks about both marriage and those who are not married and how like a belief in what marriage is plays into that in chapter 7. 
Um, so singleness is talked about a lot in chapter 7. Um, this is the section when Paul says, like, I wish some of you could be like I am. Paul saying, like, I'm single, I'm not married. I wish some of you could be like that because uh, it's a different way of life that's also valuable in the kingdom. So um, this is the kind of the biggest teaching on that in Scripture, um, chapter 7. It's also one of the biggest teachings on marriage in Scripture. I love that they happen together. They both ought to happen. And that's something I'm... Um, I think really matters, and I hope we can carry carry out in our leading of the church. Mm-hmm. I th- I think you guys know this. I think singleness has been undervalued, underemphasized, undertaught in the church, and we need to do that well. We need to do a good job. We need to say things like Paul says. We need to purposely um, create ways of talking, ways of teaching, ways of doing groups that don't isolate and alienate. That matters a lot. We need to do it. We also need to continue elevating marriage. Like I, and I think it's a, I don't want it to become a throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing where it's like, we've been talking about marriage forever. No, let's only talk about the other. And I, I don't know that that usually happens. I just, I think I have this sense of like, let's be careful because marriage also matters a ton, you know? And when marriages break down really, really bad, when parenting is done poorly, really, really, really bad, those things need to be handled well. Singleness needs to be handled well. Let's do both. I like that Paul addresses both. Let's not forget one without the other. Um, and just like me as a married man with kids, needs to be able to talk about singleness and single people really well in the church and honor that and seek understanding about it. Ask people like Kathy what I can learn from a situation that I'm not living. I think in the same way, single people need to be able to say, marriage matters. What can I learn about that? You guys as ministers, some of you are single. Some of you may be single a long time. And Paul would say, great, leverage that. Um, need to continue to pursue, hey, what is it like to be married? How can I speak into that? Um, and, and I would even say, be bold enough to still be a minister with people who are married. Mm-hmm. Because just because you're single and haven't lived it doesn't mean you don't have something to say mm-hmm. to people who are married. You're not written off from having influence, having authority, having wisdom. You have wisdom. Um, just like I think I have wisdom sometimes for what it's like to be single. Mm-hmm. I'm not living it currently, but mm-hmm. I still have wisdom. You're not living marriage currently. You still have wisdom. So let's work together and do it together and not abandon one or the other. I think that's the way it's done well. You know, does that make sense? Um, yeah, I think it's a big deal. Um, that's chapter seven. Um, the next part of your outline um, from chapters eight through 10. Uh, for my little outline here, I just call it be considerate. Be considerate. There's a lot of things we could say about it. Um, chapter 8 is a section where he talks a lot about food sacrifice to idols, which is one of those passages sometimes for us that's like, this is weird. You know, there, some people are eating food that was sacrificed to idols, and some people think they shouldn't. Um, I think we can understand it. On its surface, it's like, that's a weird thing we don't deal with. But I think we can understand it. It's basically a, an aspect of a lot of believers saying, yeah, this was like, this was a lamb or whatever that was sacrificed to an idol. Well, I don't believe that idol has power. Maybe it's not even real. That's dumb and foolish. There's meat. Let's eat it. Like Christ is more powerful than them. Why am I worried about it? But there's some people either who just like, no, that's wrong and we shouldn't. Or maybe, you know, who knows? Paul doesn't get into all the details, but I'm thinking about what it's like to be a human being. Maybe there are people who came from being really, really, really tied up in that world. And they're like, I don't want anything to do with anything that could be a cult pagan. There is power in that stuff. Just because it's not as real and true or as powerful as God himself 
there's there are other spiritual forces at work in the world. I like I could just see there being some people who are like, stay away from that. I don't touch. It's not good for you. You know, don't even touch it. I get that. Um, there could just be some people who are rule followers. I get that too. And then there's some people who are like, why are you so worried about it? It's all going to be fine. Um, think about Harry Potter. I think is an easy example. Maybe a sillier one than this feels like. But I don't think it's altogether that different. You know, there's some people who are just like, who cares? It's a great story. Enjoy it. And there are some people who are like, I know people who are Wiccan. And I know it's not the same. But if you get close, it starts to feel okay. And if it starts to feel, I'm just telling you it's not worth it. And then there are some people who, you know, I don't know, are just like, it could be bad, stop. And they didn't even have that much thought in it. And I would say all three of those can have some validity. What Paul calls us to is be considerate. If you're doing something that's going to make other people stumble, confused, not trust you, if you're a minister of the gospel, man, avoid it. It's not worth it. Um, some things are worth probably teaching some context about and saying, like, hey, let's have this conversation because it might be freeing for you. And that's great. Use your wisdom to be considerate in your context. Um, another example, again, it's not quite the same, but it's in the ballpark, is like the alcohol policy here at Southeast. Alcohol is not bad. Paul drank alcohol. Timothy drank alcohol fine it's not sin here at church we've said we're asking our staff members our residents not to drink because of whatever cultural things come with it you might argue about whether that's a good idea or not mm-hmm. it's what we've been asked to do by our elders because that's a way that our elders see us being a witness in the community okay so if you do that you're in violation of a rule and you're in violation of a spirit that's going to have cause a whole bunch of motive questions that you don't want to deal with you know so I think this principle of just like be considerate, be aware of your context, know where you are and what's going to affect your witness. If it's going to affect your witness negatively and it's a, a matter of freedom, then it's probably not worth it. And if it isn't going to affect your witness but might be an opportunity for you to teach freedom to somebody, great. Do that well in a thoughtful way. Um, but be considerate is how I would summarize these chapters. So Food Sacrifice Idols is chapter 9. Paul talks about... Um, it kind of does theological teaching on that through chapter 9 a little bit of like, you know, as an apostle, I'm just as free as you are, but there's some things I don't do because it's not helpful, you know, so let's be wise. Um, chapter 10, Paul goes back kind of into um, Israel, into their historical thing, uh, like Exodus narrative, Moses narrative, um, idolatry in the land, and it's like them separating from some of these things that they probably could have done because God's more powerful than it. But if they would have participated in some of that food or some of those feasts or some of that drinking, it would have shown those people that they're no different. But God's whole thing was, you are my holy people, my chosen people. You're different than everybody else. So do some things differently. Eat differently. Drink differently. That's a way to gain witness. Um, so that's what Paul calls them to, chapter 10. Um, look at verse um, 23 of chapter 10. Paul says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. There's another section, I think it's in, and I'm not going to be able to find it quickly now. I should have looked at it earlier. Um, there's another section where he says the same thing. I want to say it's in chapter 6. Yes, yeah, chapter 6, verse 12, where he says, Everything's permissible for me, but not everything's beneficial. Everything's permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So taking those couple different instances of this, I think a really helpful framework for thinking about how you exercise what it's like to be free in Christ so first of all, it's everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. So like, you might be allowed to do, like you're not going to lose your salvation if you do something. Is it really good for you? Is it good for the community? Like, I think that's a good question. Like, is this actually helpful and good? Um, and sometimes you can come to a good answer on that. 
um, everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. So it's like, is this going to help me lead? Is this going to help me evangelize? Is this going to make our community stronger and build up? Or is it going to sow weakness into it or confusion into it? And if so, maybe it's not worth it, you know? And then that other one, everything's permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Um, it's okay to eat candy. You know, it's okay to whatever, fill in your blank with stuff that's like not evil. It's okay to um, watch TV. It's okay to, you know, all that stuff. It's like, yeah, that's fine. But at what point does it become the thing that drives you and controls you, the thing that's dictating your actions? It's okay. This is, alcohol is a great example of this. It's okay to have a drink. It is not okay to be mastered by it. And you guys know, you guys know, you've seen or been around or really personally know what it's like to be mastered or be around somebody who's mastered by something like that. And you can be like, I've got it. It's okay. It's just a little bit. But you know, something changes when you're mastered. And so I think there's even wisdom in probably saying like, could this pretty easily become something that masters me? Then maybe it's not worth it. Or is it something where I don't have control of myself? Then I need to stop it. Um, But those three things are helpful. Everything's permissible, but not everything's beneficial. Everything's permissible, but not everything's constructive. It's not good for me. It's not helpful for the community. And if I'm losing control, if the Holy Spirit is losing control of me because this thing I do, this thing I have, this thing I eat, this thing I watch, then I've got a, a lordship, worship problem. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so I think those three things are helpful that, that Paul gives us on this topic. Okay, um, chapters 11 through 14. Paul addresses, I would call the gathering, is your outline points here, the gathering. Um, so he's going to talk about um, how you gather for worship. He's got a, a major section here in chapter 11 on um, like if you should wear head coverings or not when you're worshiping and praying and prophesying. Um, this is, let me see where I can find it quickly. I'm not going to be able to find it quickly. We, we all know I won't, right? Um, in First Corinthians, he talks here about, um, well, here's what I know at least. In First Timothy 2 is a section where Paul talks about, yeah, it's First Timothy 2 or Second Timothy 2, where he says something like, I, I do not permit a woman to teach in church, or women must be silent in church, right? In First Corinthians 11, Paul implies that women are doing some prophesying in the church. So taking those two verses together, and we'll talk about this more when we're in Timothy, taking those two verses together to me says that when Paul says women need to be silent in the church, then I want to look at that Timothy one specifically in context and say clearly he does not mean 100% unilaterally women are not allowed to talk in church because here they are, and he doesn't say anything about it. So I think he's probably teaching something else more specific or more culturally attuned or a little bit more nuanced in First Timothy based on the fact that in First Corinthians it's clearly different. Mm-hmm. So I don't think Paul has two different rules, especially because in one of those he says, this is our rule in all the churches. It's like, well, it, that's not the rule in this one. So um, again, we'll talk more about what that could mean in Timothy when we talk Timothy. But First Corinthians 11 has one of those important passages to wrestle with, I think you should know about. There's tons of nuance we could get into in First Corinthians 11 with that topic. We won't do today because Timothy gives us more space for that topic. Okay. First uh, Corinthians 11 talks about having the Lord's Supper together. Um, it's got that passage that's um, really well known, read in a lot of churches. I read it this, this last Sunday in First Corinthians 11, um, 23 through 26. Yeah, Haley. Do you have time to explain 
Yeah. So as best I understand it, and this is this becomes one of those like, well, if that then, but um, this is best the best shot I can give to it. Um, <clears throat> I think he's he's saying like you're wearing men men would have uncovered their head, not worn head coverings, as a way of like in worship like that because they're exposing their whole selves to God, kind of. So he's like, if you're trying to be in the presence of God and do this stuff, but like wearing a hat, wearing a hood, wearing whatever you would wear. And it's like, hey, don't do that. Which seems a little bit like, um, which is honestly, this is where um, some of that stuff comes from culturally, where it's like when you walk in the church, but you take that hat off. It's some flavored by this. Some of it's just like, you look young and disrespectful. But it kind of come, has roots in this a little bit that, that kind of holds on, which is interesting. So this to me is kind of cultural practice where it's like, um, I mean, think of the Middle East today. Um, at least in traditional Middle Eastern cultures, women still cover their heads, cover their, you know, much more of their skin. So I think Paul's saying like, hey, live in propriety here, like dress normal, I think is kind of, if we could really boil down some of what he's getting at, then I would be like, well, but wait, what does this mean for us? Because he says cover and uncover and we don't do that. Um, and I think there's good questions there that we can't fully get into or, I, or that I don't have super clear answers for. But I think what he's talking about here is like, dress like everybody around you dresses. And it kind of even ties into the last section of like, if women were walking into church back then with no head covering on, people would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is just like the temple of Aphrodite. We don't do, you do that there? And like, no, but I could, because I'm free to. And be like, yeah, but don't, you know? I think it would have been a little bit like that. And if men were not dressed respectfully and normally for the culture, people would be like, what is going on there? Do men just do whatever they want? Are they not respectable, responsible you know, people? Um, which, again, the details don't quite connect for us, but I think the principle does. Or it's like, be reasonable. Be considerate of people around you so that you're not confusing, so that you're not distracting, so that it's not raising questions that you can't answer, I think is kind of what he's getting at. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, okay, chapter 12 is the long spiritual gifts chapter. We mentioned that earlier. This is a great one just to, to try to remember. Uh, you guys know, I think sometimes there's some chapters that's like, it's just good to know where it is so you can pull it out. That's why we spend time going through scripture like this. That's part of it. That's why I quiz you on that, on the Bible Knowledge Survey, not just to try to create something we can rate. I think it's so helpful because you're going to get questions about spiritual gifts all the time. If you can be like, oh, that's First Corinthians 12. We should read that together. It's just so helpful to know. It makes you feel confident, saves you time. Even the little thing, I really think this is true, even the little thing of just knowing where it is really does give me confidence. Even if I don't have, I don't have complete confidence in teaching every nuance about, you know, how men and women operate in church. Mm -hmm. But I know I could turn you to 1 Corinthians 11, I can go to 1 Timothy 2, we can deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, and that gives me a little bit of confidence to start the conversation and then get to a place where we can even agree to disagree or where I can say, I don't know. I just think it matters. I just want to inspire you with the desire to know some important chapters. I think it's so helpful to you. So 1 Corinthians 12 is a spiritual gifts chapter. Um, this is a lot of where 
there's the, um, I mean, look at 12 verse 12. The body's a unit, though it's made up of many parts, so all its parts are many, they form one body. He goes off on that metaphor for a while. So that's primarily where that metaphor comes from is here in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 4. Let's read 4 through 6 together. This is a really, again, like key theological basis for this conversation. Um, he says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God who works all of them in all men. So I think this is kind of his like theological appeal for unity on this stuff. It's like you guys are going to experience the Holy Spirit differently, but there's just one Holy Spirit. You guys are going to do things for God differently, but there's one God you're serving. If you can't be okay doing it different ways, you're going to have a hard time. Um, in this room, we've got such a variety of gifts. We've got such a variety of the ways we experience God. Think about our debrief at SFR, how different all of that was. And some of that's just because we're in different seasons, whatever. Some of that's just what God's like. You guys are going to experience Him differently. That's got to be okay. You know, it's got to be okay. And that's what Paul's saying here. Same God. Isn't it beautiful that He meets each of us? He's walking with Gabby the same time he's walking with Alyssa. Mm -hmm. He meets all of us. He can do it. Same God. Same spirit. Don't fight each other about it. Figure out how to let God do what he wants to do. Um, It's a big, big, big deal in this section. Um, Okay. We could spend a long time on this, obviously. Let's summarize. Chapter 13 is the love chapter that you've heard at weddings, which I think is fine. Um, (laughs) But Paul didn't write this with chapter 7. He wrote it here, and I think he did that on purpose. And again, I think it's great. Do it in a wedding. If you want to have it in your wedding, great. Um, If you had it at your wedding, great. Um, It's a great chapter, and it talks about love in a healthy and thorough, really good way. I think it's a beautiful, romantic love conversation. I think what Paul um, meant even more was this is how we're going to operate together as we're trying to figure out how to experience God differently, but work together is you've got to be patient. You've got to be kind. Don't envy. Don't boast. That's how this is going to work together. Um, and I mean, even just to take those two words and think about how you experience living in community with people who are experiencing the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Don't envy. Don't boast. Isn't that most of the pendulum? Mm-hmm. I wish I could do that. I wish I could do that. Well, in my quiet time, I, I mean, it just swings back and forth on that. And I think Paul would say, that's going to kill you. Be patient, be kind, don't envy, don't post, don't hold record of wrongs, love each other. That's going to fix it. Um, this, I think, is really, really important. I want to show you, um, starting in verse 8, uh, he says, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So this passage sometimes is used to um, teach a system of thinking called cessationism, if you've heard that before, um, which basically means cease, like the that some gifts have ceased. You know, where there's prophecy, it will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. So if you believe this, then you believe that gifts like that have ceased today. Now, where that comes from, it's important to know for lots of reasons, but where that argument comes from is, Paul says, where there's prophecies, they will cease. Where there's tongues, they will cease. Where there's knowledge, 
it will pass away. So those things are kind of taken as categories of these miraculous, sometimes called sign gifts, tongues, um, prophecy, and like words of knowledge, kind of like, I know something about you that the Holy Spirit revealed to me. Um, usually healing is thrown in this kind of conversation as well, which is interesting to me because it's not what he says, but an extrapolation. Um, but then where this comes from is in verse 10, when it says, when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. So the argument kind of goes, once uh, that word perfection, we tend to think of as like, I don't do anything wrong. Um, it also, though, has the meaning, has the overtone in Greek of like completeness, which would be perfect, right? Like a perfect circle is complete. Um, so the idea would be once, um, once what God has wanted to do is complete, then these imperfect things that helped get there will go away. Does that line of thinking make sense? Mm-hmm. I'm not asking if you agree, just so you follow in. Mm-hmm. Um, so often how I've heard it is, this, is uh, this would refer to like the completion, the perfection would refer to, now we have scripture all put together. We can fully know what God wants us to know. So we don't need people doing miracles anymore. We don't need to speak in tongues anymore because we have the stories of it happening and we know how it works. We don't need people doing prophetic stuff anymore because all the prophets are right here. It's complete. So it goes away, and now we have this. Does that make sense? There's other nuances to how you could build that argument. That's the one I primarily have heard. Um, to me, I don't think, think whatever you want about the gifts. I don't think that biblical argument can hold up. I just don't think that's a, a good or fair treatment of the text. I mean, again, the conversation about the, the gifts still is another conversation that we can and will have. But I don't think that holds up. I, like, I would challenge somebody if they want to hold that view. Like, well, let's talk about other things, but... What Paul's talking about here, he still talks to, um, let's see, let me find it. Um, so verse 10, when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Um, but then in verse 12, he's like, now we see a poor reflection, then we'll see face to face. What do you think he's talking about based on everything else we ever hear Paul talk about with language like that? We see, seeing Jesus face to face, I think is what he's getting at. Like, long-term future what do we think of when we think of perfection entering earth what do we think of when god completes everything he set out to do it's the return and the consummation of everything he set out to do i i think if you would tell paul so when you said perfection you meant once we write down all of your writings in matthew mark and luke and get them all together in a book right he'd be like what what are you talking why are you treating my writings like that like i think there would be so many other questions that it's i i think clearly at least not what Paul intended. Could be what the Holy Spirit intended. I think it's clearly not what Paul intended. So let's at least um, be on that basis. But I think he's pointing towards a longer term future of what God's going to do to bring heaven and earth together. Not the shorter term future of um, like those gifts to me don't just exist to evangelize until we have the Bible. I just don't think that makes sense of what Paul's trying to get at. Is that, is, are you clicking? Does that work? Okay. So how those gifts works then? Clearly, in this church, they're happening. Clearly, um, in other places, Paul kind of hints at things like this happening. I, I don't think Paul is surprised at the fact that people are speaking in tongues. I don't think Paul's surprised at the fact that people have prophecy to give. Now, I think people prophesying is different than Jeremiah being a prophet. I don't think we really have examples of that, you know, where God has said, like, you are my prophet and everything you say comes straight from me and go. I just don't think that usually happens. Um, but I'm certainly not, a, I mean, you guys experienced SFR. There was some kind of prophecy happening, mm-hmm. right? Um, with somebody who prayed over you and had some things to share. God did something. Now, 
not 100%, right? That wasn't an inspired word of God that 100% of the things that were said were infallible, was it? No. But there was something that happened that the Holy Spirit did. That's prophecy. That's speaking on God's behalf to build up the body. So I think that happens. I think it just did happen. You know, I, I'm not afraid of that. Um, it doesn't always have to be weird. It's powerful, and it's good, and it's edifying, and it's helpful. And I think those gifts work that way. Um, so I just want you to see that flow of thought, kind of think through it so that you have, have some thought behind it because you'll probably encounter that conversation on some level. I think it's important. Um, chapter 14 goes into a little bit more specifically on prophecy and tongues. Your heading probably says that. The biggest thing Paul says here, again, he assumes that those things are happening in church. The biggest thing he says is if somebody's going to be speaking out in tongues publicly, somebody's got to interpret it. And you need to do all of this in an orderly way so that it's not confusing to people who don't know what's going on and so that it's not like chaotic in a way that you don't understand because God wants to speak to people. God's not interested in riling people up. He wants to speak to people. And that this whole thing is, is one of my biggest things I want to hold to in this conversation. I'm all for miraculous moves of the Spirit and God doing powerful things that are beyond our control. But I think there are some places I've seen that stuff take place or, or I'm aware of that stuff taking place. I don't think take this chapter very much into account. Many do, um, but there are some that don't. And I think that's one of the biggest things we have to caution. The problem becomes if you see a church or hear of a church or hear of a story that's chaotic and out of control and unclear, then it's like, see, that stuff's a mess. Like, no, that stuff, like speaking in tongues, prophesying, doing powerful things, God moving in tangible ways is real and good. People allowing that to become chaotic and confusing is a people problem. That doesn't mean that those spiritual gifts don't exist. Does that make sense? So I just think we need to be willing to let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit wants to do. And then willing to be bold enough to say, God asks us to do this in a way that makes sense and is helpful. So let's make sure we're making sense and are helpful. And if those two things can't coexist, then I think we've missed it. But they need to, both need to happen. Does that make sense? That's how I would summarize that section. Okay. Um, chapter 15 um, and 16, your next uh, outline point there, are called the resurrection. So chapter 15 is another great chapter to remember, to just know. Um, it's when Paul talks about the resurrection a lot. This is the longest teaching on the resurrection, the most theological explanation of the resurrection. Um, chapter 15 is fantastic. Um, let's see. I want to show you... Um, verse 14 of chapter 15. I'm just going to hit a few verses that are important because I'll just read the whole chapter if I don't. So here's a couple of verses. Verse 14 is really good. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. I think just hang on that for a little bit. For one that's just like a, ah, oh, that's good sometimes. But also, like, hang on that in your belief. If the resurrection didn't happen, then what you're doing is useless and foolish. What you believe is wrong. Um, so, I mean, especially, oh, I think you guys know that. You know, sometimes scholarship gets to this point where you're like, well, the resurrection, you know, it's metaphorical or something. It's like, if the resurrection isn't real, then I'm out. If you think the resurrection is not real, I'm probably not going to listen to you. If you think the resurrection is not real, I'm going to doubt everything else you have to say because that's the linchpin. That's the whole thing. Um, so you've got to hold on to it. Um, verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. Think about Paul again writing specifically into this context. He's told them we're called to be holy. You don't get to do everything you're free to do because it might be harmful for people. You've got to be considerate of one another. You've got to guard yourself. You're a temple of God. Be holy. If the resurrection is not real, then all those things are just rules that make you miss out on mm -hmm. stuff you want to do. Mm -hmm. 
but Christ has indeed been raised, he says in verse 20. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Um, so that turn for him is big. If this hasn't happened, then this is a waste of time. But it has. And I love that he says, we talk about this a little bit in Romans in different phrasing, but he says he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Isn't that so good? So it's like he was raised and so will you be. He was the first one, which means there's more. Um, love that. And even love that like falling asleep. It's like it's not permanent, it's not forever. He was sleeping a little bit. You're just going to be sleeping a little bit and then we're going to rise and it's going to change everything. Um, here's another significant thing here in verse 29. He says, Now if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Um, this becomes a Mormon teaching where some people really are baptized for those who have died and weren't baptized so that they can be saved, hopefully. Yeah. Have you heard that teaching before? Been around that before? I remember being in high school one of my best friends was a Mormon and we're like working out the weight room of a football class or something. He's like, so what do you think about First Corinthians fifteen twenty nine? And I'm like, I don't know. I have to read it. And I went home and read it and like called my youth minister. Like, what do I do? You know? <laughs> um, I think what's happening here, this is still, like even still in my Bible, I have a question mark written. Like, oh, that's a weird thing that Paul said. <laughs> um, I think what he's getting at is not trying to do a thorough explanation of why you should or shouldn't be baptized for the dead here. I think he's acknowledging some, of, some people around you are doing that. So if they don't believe the resurrection, why are they so concerned about being baptized for people who are dead? Clearly, they even believe it. The resurrection is real. That's what Paul's trying to get at. Mm-hmm. It's like there's this secular belief of people doing this. Don't you think? It, I think it's almost like an apologetics entry point mm-hmm. for him where it's like they clearly believe something, right? Christ has indeed been raised. That's what we push. And I think that's what Paul's trying to get at rather than saying this is an okay and healthy practice for all churches. Does that make sense? Again, still a weird thing Paul said, um, and I wish he would have given us a couple more sentences. It would have been really nice. But I think that's what he's getting at I'm in chapter 15. Um, look at verse 32 of chapter 15. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, by the way, I don't know if he's like actually like fighting lions, or if he's like, those people were crazy, you know? <laughs> or, or if he did elementary camp. Maybe that's what happened. He's like, ah! If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Um, again, that's that same thing of like, what we're doing is hard. And it's not worth it if, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. But he did. So I'll fight the beasts, and I'll stand in court, and I'll go without food, and I'll go through shipwrecks. Whatever it takes, because he was raised from the dead. Um, that's everything for him. Um, and he keeps going on it in chapter 15. What else do I want to say? Oh, look at verse 50. This is so cool. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Um, I love that. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I think all he's trying to say is, like, don't be afraid of death. And don't be afraid, because a lot of people, I, I think at least to some extent, Paul included, believe that Jesus was going to be coming back really, really soon. And so when he's saying here, like, not all will die, but we will all be changed. I think he's trying to say, even if Jesus comes back before you die, you're not going to miss it. You don't have to have died in order for him to resurrect you. Um, so let's not, let's not, I think that's what he's trying to do. Resurrection matters, he can raise you too. But even if you haven't died, he can still do it. But we have to be changed into a new nature in order to inherit everything God has to offer us. Mm-hmm. So whether you've died or whether you've not, he's going to come back and he's going to change everything, mm-hmm. is what he's um, saying. 
And then um, look at verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory, he says. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? So those are quotes from Isaiah, from Hosea. So he's quoting old prophets even and taking them into everything that Jesus has to do with being raised into new life, which is beautiful. What are you doing? Yeah. I have a shirt for that first. Put it on this morning. I was like, I don't feel like wearing that color today. You know how amazing that would have been? It would have been amazing. If I had a shirt on. So now you know, First Corinthians 15 well, I have a shirt on. is the resurrection <laughs> chapter. That's good, man. Cool. That's a great, it's a great verse. Um, okay, First Corinthians 16 is in Paul's kind of finishing up. Um, he talks to them about he's collecting money. He's going to talk even more about that in Second Corinthians. Um, so Paul is kind of out getting money. This is one of the things the Corinthians, I think, were confused about with him, is that he's asking for money, but it's like, it's not for me. Like, I made some tents. I sold some tents. Remember the games? I sold the tents. I'm, I'm fine. I just wanted to take it to other churches. And they're like, every other teacher asks us for money probably so that they can continue to live at this lifestyle that we normally live. You're weird, man. Like, I, I think they don't get it. Um, but again, Paul's just asking, like, we're supporting one another. Churches in other parts of the world um, could really use your help. Um, and then just kind of some final stuff um, that he says, typical kinds of end greetings for Paul that you could kind of read through. I'm trying to see if there's anything really good I want to um, want to say. Oh, this is interesting. Let's look at verse 13 and 14. Some, some translations say this a little bit differently. That's why I want to point out this out to you. This says, Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong, do everything in love. Some translations say something like, Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, act like a man, be strong, which I think is, is fine. The reason I want to point this out, though, is that's one of those verses that's like, we'll use it in a Father's Day sermon or something like that or build a sermon series on And, I, and again, I think that's fine. I think all these things that Paul is saying are worth saying, like if they're inspired, they're good. We should be those things. Um, but I just want to point out, even if we're going to use this as a act like a man thing, then what Paul says is be on your guard, I think, uh, against temptation, if I'm following the context of this mm-hmm. book. So that's a good message. Stand firm in the faith. Really good message. Have courage. It's really good. Be strong. You should be strong and courageous. Sounds like somebody we know about. And then do everything in love. So if this is going to be, and again, I think it's fine for it to be one of those like, be a man kind of verses. Like, yeah, be a man. How is your love for people? How's your kindness toward people and your gentleness toward people? That's what he's at. And how's your temptation fight, by the way? Because that's part of what it means. So again, I think it's a great verse use for Father's Day sermon or whatever. Great verse for it. Use all of it. And I think it's probably a much healthier picture than act like a man, be strong. Like, yeah. And these other things, you know, it's all part of it. Um, so I think it's a big deal. Um, okay. I'm going to point out one thing to you. This is kind of silly, but um, not silly, but not particularly theologically helpful, but it's interesting. Look at verse 21. Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Um, so some people will say, maybe he wrote the whole letter. He's like, look, I wrote the letter. You can tell. But more likely, I think what it is, is at the beginning, remember, he says he's with Sosthenes. Sometimes he'll talk about other scribes who are with him, like Silas or Sylvanus. More likely, he's kind of been talking and someone's been dictating for him. And then at the end, it's like, I'm writing this part, you know, just myself. It's kind of like if you type out a letter and then you sign it at the end and write like, hey, praying for you or whatever. You know, it's like, this is me. You know, like I touched it. You got, you got my signature. 
I think it's cool to think about the like physical reality mm. of how this stuff played out um, for people. Mm. So, all right, that's first Corinthians, and I guess we'll do second next week because that's how it goes. Let me pray for this for lunch and for God to do what He does in us. God, thank you for today. Thank you for Your Word. Um, thank you for loving us like You do. Thank you for people like Paul that You made and gifted to teach like He did and to preach like He did and to not be impressed with himself and to not try to be impressive, um, but to just let the gospel be the power. God, I pray that it would be true of us that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but a matter of power. Um, Show your power through us. Do your power through us um, in the people around us, in the ministries we build. Um, Just fight against anything in us that would want to try to be impressive or look impressive or create a following for ourselves. Um, If you want to powerfully do that stuff, then great, and help us to have a humble enough heart to remember who we were when we were called, not wise or powerful or fancy or capable or whatever. We just want to be in your hands. We just want to be like Jesus. We want to be humble, and in that humility, we want your power to flow. We want powerful impact, but we want you to do it, Um, not through our own building. God, I pray that you would convict us, continually convict us of sin, and of immorality or of areas where we're trying to exercise our freedom in ways that aren't actually helpful. Bring those things to mind and change us by the power of the Spirit. Um, I pray that you would continue to pour out your giftedness on all of us. Um, Fill us full with your Spirit um, so that you can work in us and through us to do amazing things and to be encouragers and to be helpers and to be teachers and um, to be able to exhort and to be able to challenge, to be able to speak your words into situations. We can't do that on our own, um, but we want to be able to be your messengers. Um, So fill us full, God, with your Holy Spirit and help us do it in ways that are helpful and orderly and encouraging and um, uplifting to our church family. Uh, God, as we eat today, nourish us, nourish our bodies, nourish our souls and our hearts with our conversation. Help us encourage one another and build each other up through this meal, through your scripture, through our devotion this morning, through the book we're reading, um, through our continued um, kind of work at re-entering normal life after retreat. I just pray that your spirit will be at work in all of that to make us more like Jesus today than we were yesterday. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.